0: Thank you, worship team. Our text this morning is Psalm 131. So, if you're using the Blue Bibles, it's on page 519, and it's easy to miss because it's so short. Um but uh just to manage expectations if you're thinking all right we're looking at just three verses today we'll be out early I've always been personally inspired by the guys who could write like a 90 minute sermon out of half a verse um so we're going to we're going to be normal time it's going to be 30 minutes just like always um but uh Psalm 131. Let me read this text. O Lord my heart is not lifted up my eyes are not raised too high I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. God, this is a psalm that we need. It reflects an experience that, for me, is rarer than it used to be in my life, and it seems like from what we see in society that it's rarer in the world as well. Um, We need the calm soul quiet of this prayer, and so I pray that you would help us see it for what it is, help us understand it And help this become a part of our practice, of our relationship with you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, when Paul preached on Psalm 51, he compared the Psalms to a Spotify playlist that you use to reflect a mood. So you might have a pump-up playlist for exercising or a sad playlist for bad days, things like that. They give you words to express joy or sorrow or anger in ways that lead you to God. Another way to view the Psalms is like an exercise regimen for the soul. So if you grew up playing a sport, you know that physical fitness is a holistic endeavor. You can't just do one kind of exercise. You need cardio, agility, weights, and a whole range of things to strengthen your body all around. And those controlled exercises in the moment prepare you for action in the real world. And so in the same way, the more that we practice the psalms, they're like different exercises of the soul. They take us a range of human experience lived out in relationship to God. And when we practice them by reading them and meditating on them and letting them guide our own prayers, then we prepare our souls to experience those things in the real world. This psalm jumped out to me the first time I saw it because it's so short. It's one of the shortest Psalms, one of the shortest chapters in the whole Bible. So you could memorize it in a sitting and then be like, I memorized the whole chapter of the Bible, if that's your thing, uh, you know, boasting. So, um, but it resonates with me now because the, the emotion at the center of it, the experience that it describes is both so refreshing to me to read and so difficult for me to experience. This Psalm isn't in my playlist rotation because I feel this all the time. It's in there because it's an exercise that my soul desperately needs. It's an experience, I'm calling it, of quiet-souled prayer. David writes, I've calmed and quieted my soul. I hear that, and something in me hungers for it. And I think it's not just me. I wonder how many of you hunger for it, too. How many of you experience a baseline of stress or anxiety that feels like rats, kind of always gnawing at the foundation of your soul? Or how you feel on the edge of burnout, or in the middle of burnout, that you're just treading water, trying to stay afloat in an ocean of anxiety and worry? Or how many just feel perpetually distracted, where even when you can escape from outer noise, there's a world of inner noise that keeps you in the storm, just the same, that you can't leave it behind when you're by yourself? And that's a danger to us, not just spiritually, but even like psychologically and emotionally in ways that people outside the church recognize. There were tons of articles and they kind of got put on pause like everything else did during the pandemic. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but of, uh, you know, documented rising anxiety and stress and worry in everyone from seniors to teenagers. There's a pop star, Olivia Rodrigo, whose her whole musical thing is about the anxiety and stress that can soak teenage life. And so before COVID, and we'll see about after COVID, we as a culture were feeling and talking about stress and struggle and distraction in ways that we weren't before, we didn't seem to be experiencing. And so when we look at this text today, remember, this is like one machine in a gym. There's a place for anxious prayer. There's a place for sorrowful prayer, for angry prayer, or even for prayer so joyful that we struggle to kind of match words to our happiness. But this describes an experience that for a myriad of cultural and technological reasons in our day feels like it's slipping from our grasp, feels like a muscle that's atrophying. We need this quiet-souled prayer. And so my hope today is that as we look at three elements of this, three elements of quiet-souled prayer, that we would come away from this time with a vision for what this kind of prayer looks like and uh, the conviction to make it part of our regular spiritual lives, to get back on this machine, so to speak. So the first element of quiet-souled prayer is that it is humble. Quiet-souled prayer is humble. David shows us this by cutting out the opposite of humility, kind of like a woodcarver will cut away everything from a block of wood that's not the shape he wants. And so that's what he does in verse 1, if you look at it. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. This is tough to translate because these phrases, a heart lifted up, eyes raised, occupying ourselves with great and marvelous things, they sound like acts of worship, but they're actually expressions of pride. So a heart lifted up in this sense isn't a heart held up as an offering to God. It's a heart that's raised up on a pedestal, a pedestal to the level of God. In Second Chronicles 26, verse 16, it says, When King Uzziah was strong, he grew proud. That's his heart was lifted up, same phrase, to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Uzziah took pride in his strength. His heart was lifted up. And he performed an act of worship that only a priest was supposed to do. So he broke the given law of his people. And he tried to take over the terms of his relationship with God. In the same way, raised eyes in this sense is not an expression of lifting my eyes up to look for God, but of standing arrogantly in the presence of God as if we're equals. So the pride David describes in these phrases is the pride of self-importance. It's saying, I matter most. What's important to me is going to be important to everyone around me, including God. So if I do God the honor of praying to him, we're going to talk about what I want to talk about, and we're going to be done when I want to be done, because I've got other things to do. So the opposite of this aspect of pride, so that's one aspect of humility, is self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness means I'm not thinking about myself at all, not positive and not negative either i don't really matter i care more about what's in front of me at the moment i don't have an agenda or an ego to worry about in this time c.s lewis writes this about humility he says do not imagine that if you met a really humble man he'll be what most people call humble nowadays he will not be a sort of greasy person who's always telling you that of course he's nobody probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him so humility, the kind of humility described in this verse, is self-forgetful. Instead of coming to God with things to say or ask or demand to set the agenda, it comes just to be in his presence. And then finishing verse 1, to occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, sounds like a positive thing. It sounds like contemplating a God who is eternal and in so many ways above us, and he is, and that could be a good thing. But what? David has in view here, is demanding to know more than we can know as human beings. It's demanding that God answer all of my questions and fill in all the gaps that I want him to fill in. Our lives present us with many things that we don't understand. Why does God allow suffering and injustice? Why are there so many people who don't believe that Jesus is Lord of everything? Why does it sometimes feel like God is absent? There's been a rash of Christians in the last few years who have deconstructed their faith publicly to where they say they're no longer Christians, or they're not Christians in any recognizable sense of the word. And we could argue over whether the reasons they give are the real reasons, you know, what might be going on in any given story, but many of them cite questions they couldn't get satisfactory answers to. They wanted explanations of things that don't get explained. Now, there's a sermon for another time here, so this is a brief tangent, and then we're coming back to the main point. I don't have time to get into it, but the Bible itself is filled with people asking questions that God doesn't answer. It's filled with it. So, Psalm 88, 13, and 14. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? No answer. Or Job 17, 15 to 16. Where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? The book of Job is a whole book of the Bible about a guy asking questions of God and never really getting his questions answered. Or even in a vision of heaven, in Revelation chapter six, verses nine and 10, the apostle John writes this. He writes, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the Bible shows us over and over again that we don't get answers to all of our questions. There are things too great and too marvelous for us. But in this prayer, David humbles himself by not bringing whatever questions or concerns he might have to set the agenda he displays another aspect of humility, which is listening instead of talking. He's accepting that God is God and he's not. He's not coming to demand something of God. He's coming just to be in the presence of God. Now, as a reminder, like we said, there are many prayers in the Bible that don't fit these criteria of humility. They come with an agenda, with a lot of talking, with a lot of questions. God is perfectly okay with that. But if you know someone who only ever calls you to request something of you, someone who you see their name pop up on your phone and you go, ugh, can I mute it, you know, uh, how long can I put them off? Um, if you have a truck, you probably have lots of people like that in your phone. Um, <laughs> I was one of those people this week, so thank you. I won't name the truck owner so he doesn't get more calls, but I really appreciate you truck owners. Let me hear you say that. You put up with this a lot. Um, but... Uh, A relationship of real mutual enjoyment isn't just one person asking another for a favor all the time. It's a relationship where you are together sharing something you enjoy and sharing the presence of one another, enjoying that together. It's mutual. And so the question this psalm asks of us is, what percentage of my prayer life is marked by this kind of humility, is marked by listening to God in his presence instead of talking or just bringing my agenda. Because these are the attitudes, this humility is what leads us to a quiet soul. The second aspect of quiet soul prayer is that it's peaceful. You look at verse 2. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So David turns from the the kind of his carved-away depiction of humility in verse 1 to say, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And he illustrates this with the image of a weaned child with its mother. Now, I'm sure that like me, you use the word weaned in daily conversation, like once a week at least, but on the off chance, you don't. Uh, A weaned child is a child who is no longer nursing. So in the ancient Near East, in David's culture, uh, it was common to nurse children until they were three or four years old, mainly due to food scarcity, so you could feed both mother and child. And so a weaned child is a child that's old enough not to nurse anymore. It's also a child that has enough maturity and self-control to sit quietly with its mother instead of crying or fussing, even if it gets hungry or anxious. So David's use of this image of a weaned child with its mother shows us a few more things about this kind of prayer. So the peace he describes is a chosen peace. So he says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. This is active language, like someone soothing a fussy baby or maybe quieting a nervous animal. He might have all kinds of anxieties or concerns that tempt him away from humility and away from peace. But like a child old enough to sit still and quiet, even when she's hungry quiet-souled prayer puts those feelings aside and it chooses peace in the moment. So this is a sign for us that this isn't just a prayer to reflect a feeling of calm and quiet we naturally feel. This isn't just for the naturally tranquil. It's a reminder that there are times where we need to take the things that trouble our souls, our worries about money, our concerns about family or friends, our boyfriend or girlfriend, our questions about the troubles and injustice in the world, and say to them, shh. Not right now. We're going to wait. This peace is a chosen peace. And it's also a relational peace. David doesn't compare his soul to a child sitting in a room alone. It's not silence for silence's sake. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. This is a peace that comes from being in the presence of someone I trust. A child is able to calm their desires because their mother is near and they trust her. Quiet soul prayer is able to calm its desires and struggles because it's in the presence of God. This is where we can see that this kind of prayer isn't simply a meditation exercise that would fit just as well in a non-Christian context or set of beliefs. Corey Tinboom, she's a Dutch Christian woman whose family was imprisoned in concentration camps during World War II for helping and hiding Jews, writes this. She writes, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. I don't know if she's doing this consciously, but her quote echoes one from Augustine of Hippo, an African bishop. He writes, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were made for our souls to rest, to experience peace in the presence of God. Verse 3 says, O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. When you see the word Lord in small caps like that in a Bible, it's a, that's not a generic word, Lord. That's the specific name God gave his people when he made covenants, or kind of vowed, promised relationships with them. The name means I am. We sang about that in the last song. We sang the great I am. And we're going to close in a bit by talking about what it means to hope in him. But David directs our attention to him in the psalm because the Lord, I am, is the one who gives us peace. Quiet soul prayer calms the soul in the presence of the Lord. The final attribute of this prayer is that it's hopeful. It's humble, it's peaceful, and it's hopeful. To hope in something is to arrange our lives to prepare for it. It's not just a feeling of optimism. This word in Hebrew is often translated to wait. And the idea is that if you've applied to a dream job or a dream school, then You're going to pass by other offers and other calls, other letters. You're going to ignore them because you're waiting on the dream one to work out. You are hoping in that by saying no to other things so that you can wait for it to come. That's a bit of a silly analogy or light analogy, but soul quiet prayer is prayer that's committed to wait on God. I have other things I might hope in. Uh, I might hope in just the distraction of a moment. So, you know, I spend like 60 seconds in prayer and then I'm off looking at cat videos or something. Um, Or I may hope in relationships so that I zip off to my texts or my social media feed. Or I may hope in my finances so that I live with one eye on my retirement account and I'm rejoicing or lamenting kind of as the stock market is going up and down. If my inner world is put on hold for the latest news from one of those things or from anything else, That's my hope. Soul Quiet Prayer hopes in the Lord. It says the stock market can wait, social media feed can wait, they're not what I really need. They're not the center of the real universe, and they're not worth being at the center of my universe either. To hope in the Lord is to be willing to quiet those other voices and to listen for God. It's to give our attention to him and to wait for him and with him in faith. Like a weaned child trusts that her mom knows best, soul quiet prayer trusts that God knows best what we need. As long as we're with Him, we are exactly where we need to be. I said earlier that David names God in this psalm, the name I Am. That's important because when David was writing this psalm, there was already a thousand years of history, over a thousand years of history, behind that name. Yahweh was the God who had not only created the universe, but had personally spoken to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. The I Am was the God who had overcome the greatest political superpower of the day, Egypt, to liberate this no-name tribe of slaves and make them into a nation. The I Am was the God who had the power over food, water, sun, rain, life and death itself. And who had tied himself by grace to this lowly, tiny nation to be their God and have them be his people. And that God had promised that he would never forsake his people, that he would ultimately cleanse the whole earth, including them, of sin and suffering and injustice, and establish an eternal kingdom on the new earth with one of David's descendants on the throne, That God, with all that history, had promised that everything was going to be all right one day for those who trust him. When David silences his pride and he quiets his soul, he begins to remember who's there with him. He begins to remember the power and love of his covenant God. And he finds hope that quiets his soul. Dallas Willard summarizes it this way. He's a theologian. He writes, Solitude well practiced will break the power of busyness, haste, isolation, and loneliness. You will see that the world is not on your shoulders after all. You will find yourself, and God will find you in new ways. Silence also brings Sabbath to you, it completes solitude, for without it, you cannot be alone. Far from being a mere absence, Silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. In silence, we come to attend. The world isn't on our shoulders. That's what anxiety and stress and distraction tempt us to believe, that we are the center of the universe, that we are carrying it all, and it's not. Those things are habits that lead to despair. But this kind of prayer is a habit of hope. So how do we find this hope? How do we hope in the Lord? We who are not Jewish, most of us here, I'm guessing. A thousand years after this psalm was written, one of David's descendants, Jesus of Nazareth, was talking with a group of Jews about Abraham. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, which would have been kind of a crazy enough statement that he'd been around 2,000 years before. He claims the name of Israel's covenant God for himself. And that's an absolutely insane thing to claim. Except that Jesus died on a cross, and three days later he rose again from the dead. Not that he survived or he made it out kind of by being resuscitated. He was made into a new creation a completely different kind of being, the power of life and death, the power of the great I am, made him alive in a new and eternal kind of way. So that sealed his claim to be who he said he was. And he said that one day he would come back to remake the world without any of the things that trouble us, without any pride, any suffering, any death or sin ever again. He promised that hope, and he underwrote it by his own resurrection from the dead. In another place, he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Christians know that we don't have hope because we impress God with the rest of our lives. We have hope because Jesus made it possible for us to let go of our control, of our selfishness, of our pride, and to hold on to him instead. He lived a perfect human life, and he gives that relationship, that perfection, to us. He died as a sacrifice for our sins so that we could be forgiven for them. And he is now in the presence of God the Father, so that when we belong to Jesus, we can go into that presence too, into heaven itself and the coming new creation. So in God's presence, by the life of Jesus, we can come and experience the rest of a quiet soul. Pray with me. Dear God, we are tempted in many ways to be the opposite of what we discussed today. To be proud by putting ourselves at the center of the universe. To be anxious instead of peaceful. And to despair instead of having hope. And we pray that by your grace, we could come to know you, the God who gives hope, the only hope that we really have. And I pray that our prayer lives could be marked by this exercise of coming to you with a calm and quiet spirit and experiencing the joy and the hope of your presence. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.